Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Those of you visiting with us, uh, we are going through this, this beautiful letter for all of this year. We started back right after Christmas, and it's going to carry us through pretty much the end of this calendar year, taking our time, trying to savor it in, in all of its different beautiful and sometimes mysterious words for us. The passage we come to this morning, Hebrews chapter 4, is all about God's Word, like what, what it's like, what it accomplishes, what its purpose is. The Bible amazes me. I mean, whatever you think about it, about whether you like its contents or not, whether you find it compelling, you have to, at the very least, if you really think about it, you have to be amazed by it, the Bible. Because here's this book, written over the course of several thousand years, in existence now in its complete form for a couple thousand years, that has proven compelling in nearly every culture in the world at one time or another. This is the same book that is compelling to millions in the United States. It also has devotees in places like India, Afghanistan, in South America, and in Africa. The Bible has spoken to people in 21st century America just as it spoke to people in medieval Europe. There's something about this book better preserved than any other famous book in more copies and more translations than any other famous book that, that captures something. Have you ever wondered what it is that makes the Bible so beloved across so many of the barriers that normally divide us and what we like? I think this passage this morning suggests that at least part of that is that the Bible gets us. That it, it, it's like a sword that pierces through all the layers that we build up around ourselves. That it actually sees through all of that and, and gets us. This passage describes the Bible or God's word as, as like a sword that goes straight through to, the, to the, the essence of who you are and lays it bare. Have you ever experienced that with, with a character? I mean, isn't that why we like great books and great movies is that there's something about these characters that pierce into us that that just get us on a fundamental level that's what makes them great they get at something that's universal for me one of the books that 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 gets me and even explains me to myself in words that i that i haven't even had before is this book called jaber crow by a guy named wendell berry he He's up in Kentucky living out in the boonies, and he, he writes about life in the boonies in Kentucky and these little small towns. And th- this central character, as I was reading that book for the first time a few years ago, it was just constantly amazing to me, almost every page, that the way he looks at the world and the meaning of the past and the beauty of, of nature and the, the, the warp and woof of small town life and even to some extent the way he processes faith and doubt it's almost like on every page I am understanding myself better through the eyes of this character that I never even heard of that's completely fictional because he gets something. I'm guessing if you've had that experience, you probably also have had the experience of seeing yourself in a character in a film or in, in a book that you wish you didn't see. Have you, ever, have you ever been gotten by a character that you know you're not supposed to like? Because he's got some sort of tendencies or characteristics that are just, that are clearly presented in an off-putting way. Like, this is not somebody you're supposed to like. For me, it's Andy Bernard on The Office. Wednesday I love The Office, especially the early years. Anybody, I mean, Office watchers out there? Yeah, most of you. Andy Bernard is this guy who, who shows up in, like, maybe the second or third season. I don't remember exactly. 
He's basically a new guy, though, and he has to introduce himself. And and in, in just gut-wrenching ways, I'm seeing my own nature as a people-pleaser to the core played out in caricature. Because this guy uses a technique that he calls personality mirroring. So that every time he comes into a room with these new people, he's going to quickly understand how it is that they communicate, what they're looking for, what they like, and he's going to mirror that. Like he's going to give them, basically ape them. He's going to give them exactly what they're giving to him. And he does it, I mean, to a ruthless extent. And and, and, and watching Andy Bernard play it out across the screen, I'm like, that is me, and I don't want to be that. Right? He gets me in a way that makes me uncomfortable, that exposes me in a way that I, that I, I see myself but don't want to be seen. I think that actually more precisely gets at what the point of this passage is. That the Bible not only understands us and explains us to ourselves, but the Bible exposes us. It rips off layers that we had tried to use to hide who we really are and puts who we really are on display for everybody to see. The Bible is a deeply uncomfortable book in that way. And in some sense, a deeply threatening book. But... The same Bible that strips us down of all the things that we put on top of who we are to try to hide ourselves from everyone else also promises us a new identity, a new set of clothes to replace the old ones. That's what we want to get at this morning in Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13. If you found that, uh, go ahead and stand with me as we read, just in honor of God's word. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be Bibles scattered throughout the seating area. We'd love for you to grab one and just take it home. That'd be our gift to you. Now, this is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is God's word. You may be seated. So I I think, even from that really quick reading, the emphasis of this passage should have come through pretty clearly. It's a passage about the Bible's ability to pierce to the core of who we are and to lay it bare. The context is, that, is, is this larger argument that this author is making, that we should not go the way of Israel, who heard good news, received promises from God, but chose not to believe in him as if he could not make good on the promises he'd made. And for that reason, they missed out on the promised land. They missed out on the rest that God had promised them. This author is trying to say, don't do that. Don't trade in Jesus for some other option, because if you do, if you choose not to believe these promises that have been made to you, then you're going to miss out on rest in the same way that Israel did. And now in verses 12 and 13, he gives us the reason. It's so important that we should work against unbelief in our hearts. The reason is that you can't ultimately hide that unbelief. You may be able to hide it from other people. You may be able sometimes even to deceive yourself. But ultimately, God's word, the same word that comes to you promising hope, also comes as a sword that can pierce through all the things you've done to hide and deceive yourself. Maybe no age ever has been more image conscious than ours. It's certainly true that no age has ever had more tools for building an image than ours had. 
I mean, every age is probably, I mean, it seems like everybody in every time period has been, has thought that they were different, right? That, that, uh, no one's ever been like this before. And, and I don't want to go there. I mean, because we all know, we've, we've seen like revolutionary America era pictures with these ridiculous powdered wigs that these guys are wearing around in non-air conditioned buildings. And you think, what were you doing? Is your image that important to you that you would suffer in this way? Every, every age has been image conscious, but, but our founding fathers didn't have Facebook at their disposal, Right? They, may, they, they maybe had ways to download what a good image looked like, but they had not nearly so many ways to upload the kind of image of themselves that they wanted to portray, that, that we have. We have Facebook. We have Pinterest. We have Twitter. Whatever. All of them could be seen as layers that we use to, to present ourselves to the world in a particular way a way of fashioning an image that we hope others will see and love. What these verses say, verses 12 and 13 that we just read, is that while we may fool other people, we can't fool God because his word pierces to the core of who we are. All those words that verse 12 uses, the joints and the marrow and the soul and the spirit, I don't think we're meant to get distracted by what each one of those individual things means. I think what, it, what it's trying to summarize is that it's the whole of who we are. It's soul and spirit, the sort of psychological, spiritual side to us. It's joints and marrow. It's the, the physical side to us. It's the whole of human existence. God's word pierces through it and sees the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And the reason that matters so much is that the one who sees us is the one to whom we have to give an account. That's verse 13. The one who ultimately judges us, sees us for who we are. Now, I want to probe a little deeper on this. I think we can see that this, is, this truth about God's word and the way that it works, it's, it's both threatening, but also, maybe in a way you, you wouldn't immediately recognize, it's also deeply encouraging it's threatening and it's encouraging. Let me say what I mean about that. It's threatening because the emphasis here is on God's word's ability to judge us for who we are and to see through us and to pass judgment on what's really there. There's no such thing as pleading the fifth before God's word, right? The fifth amendment says we don't have to give evidence to incriminate ourselves. That's irrelevant here because we are seen for who we are whether we give evidence or not. That's why the description of verse 13 works so well. Did you notice it? Before this one to whom we have to give an account, we are naked and exposed. Naked and exposed. I don't know how your translation gives us that second word. Mine that we read says exposed. But, but one, thing that, one thing that I read about this word, the word that my translation says exposed, is that it, it actually gets closer to a sense of helplessness. It's not just that it's exposed. That's kind of what the nakedness is getting at, that, that you're, you're, you're completely exposed for all to see. This word is actually a rare word. It's only used here in all of the New Testament and only used a few times in documents around that time. And it's a word that's, that's used mostly in wrestling context. It has to do with the neck. Its, word, its, word comes from, its root word comes from the word for neck. And it's used for like this wrestling hold. I don't know, maybe, maybe like a UFC style thing where you've got somebody in a headlock and and, and they can't do anything because you've completely taken away all of their power through that hold, right? So God's word leaves us naked and then leaves us unable to resist. I think that gets at something we've all noticed. It reminds me of this Seinfeld bit on why being naked can be so uncomfortable. 
You know, it's not like, you know, this is not a point about, you know, religious people being ashamed of bodies or whatever. No, it's just this, this, this human thing that we all are pretty dissatisfied with our bodies in one way or another, and being naked exposes that, right? So Seinfeld's trying to get at this, and he said, the problem with being naked is that you just, there's nothing else you can fix, right? You can't, you can't really adjust anything else to spruce up your appearance. You're just there. That's why he says it'd be kind of nice if we could at least wear a belt, maybe. Maybe hang a couple of pockets off that belt, so at least we could just sort of adjust the belt a little bit. Something to do. That rings true, though, doesn't it? I mean, we naturally do things to try to put on our best face. So I can cover up my baldness by wearing a hat. You know, I'm not in the best shape, but I can, I can cover the full extent of that problem by wearing loose-fitting clothing and avoiding anything manufactured by Under Armour. But, but, but the real... The real point that this text is getting at is that we do this spiritually just as well as we do it physically. That we, we try to cover up imperfections in our soul. We don't things that we don't want others to see. And God's word cuts right through those and lays us bare. We all try to craft an appearance to frame ourselves in the best light, to hide who we are on the inside or justify ourselves, and we get pretty good at it. I don't know about you guys, but I've even, I've even been guilty of hiding who I am while I'm confessing sin. Now, I can think of times in an accountability group where I have confessed a sin to some brothers, but confessed it in such a way that maybe it hid the inner reality of what I was really doing. So it made me look better almost by coming clean a little bit. It's like an inoculation. It made me look better on the inside. We get really good, is the point, at covering up who we are. But God's word won't be fooled. God is ultimately concerned with what's on the inside, not with what's on the outside. He wants to know where your heart is before he wants to know where your behavior is. And I fear we just don't recognize this reality as fully as we should, if at all. I'm guessing you're like me. Have you ever thought about the implications of your willingness to do things in private that you wouldn't do with somebody that you respect looking over your shoulder? To think things or give your mind over to things that you wouldn't speak in public? Isn't the implication that we don't believe God is there? At least functionally, we don't really believe he's there. Or that if he is there, we don't believe he cares. Or maybe we just don't care what he thinks. The point of this passage, Hebrews four twelve and 13, is that there are eyes far more important than the eyes of our peers that guide so much of what we do and, and so much of how we present ourselves. Far more important are the eyes of our maker, of the one that this passage says, the one to whom we must give an account. And his word won't be fooled. God's word exposes us for who we really are, and it is severely threatening. Now, as threatening as God's word is, this truth about how it operates, before we move on, I want to say, I think it's actually really encouraging, too. As what it's saying is, you're going to be stripped down naked by God's word. And that can be now, or it can be later. But it's going to happen. So why not go ahead and submit to it now? Why not go ahead and, 
and expose your life to the light that is God's word and embrace the changes that it calls for. If you're going to be exposed to it anyway, why not now? That's what N.T. Wright is getting at. Let me read you a passage. N.T. Wright is a pastor in England who, who writes about uh, lots of different passages in the New Testament. And, and this, is, this is what he says about our passage this morning. I think it's really helpful. N.T. Wright says, The thrust of the passage, though obviously intended as a warning, can also lead to a great encouragement. If you have a choice between letting the doctor examine you right away uncomfortable though that may be, and waiting until he or she can do a post-mortem on you after it's too late, it's wise to go for the first, right? If you open yourself day by day and week by week to the message of Scripture, its grand sweep and its small details, and allow the faithful preaching of Jesus and his achievement to enter your consciousness and soak down into your imagination and heart, then admittedly, The uncomfortable work of God's word will be happening on a regular basis, showing you, as we say, where you really are, what's going on deep inside, what's right getting at. Isn't it that there is a kind of liberation to be had from submitting yourself to God's word now rather than later? Don't we all know what it's like to live in hiding? What a weight it is to carry around shame for things that you're afraid to have other people see? The secrecy, the fear, the fear of discovery, the hating who you are on the inside, the always seeking after secret pleasures but never really being satisfied by them. Why not live in the light now? Why not embrace the fact that God's word strips down all of that, sees you for who you are anyway, and come out into the light and leave that weight behind? That's the call, I think, of this, of this passage. And that is what leads us to the second major thing we want to look at this morning. So, so the main point of the passage, that we've, as we've seen so far, is that God's word exposes who we really are. We can't hide from it in the way we can hide from each other. And we just said, that's a good reason to just come on out with it. Just live in the light. Submit your life to his word and, and its judgments and, and to pray for the spirit to change you in light of God's word. The second major thing we want to see is that God's word not just exposes who we really are, but promises us we can be somebody else. It promises us a new identity that comes as a gift from our father. That ultimately is where the power comes from to not care whether his word exposes us because the same word that strips us down, that strips us naked, offers us new clothes. Let me say more. What we need is a renovation. We need new life. We need a death to everything that comes natural to us and a new birth that flows from an affection for Christ and what he's done for us. That's what we need. And that is precisely the hope that's held forth in Scripture, including Hebrews and what we've seen so far. Now, now for this point, we've got to step back outside of the two verses we're looking at closely this morning and try to see them in the bigger picture. They obviously don't say anything about a promise of new identity, but they, they fall in part of a larger scope of, of this letter that is promising us exactly that. From the beginning, what this letter has been trying to do is convince this author's friends not to trade Jesus in for some other option, right? 
They all could have had more comfortable lives. They would have been safer and maybe more prosperous if they stopped affiliating with Jesus and took some sort of Roman deity or back to their original Jewish practices or whatever. He's trying to get them not to do that. And what he's been trying to tell them, his effort to convince them, has focused on all the great things about Jesus. The fact that he is eternal. The fact that his word comes to us as a word of promise and blessing. The fact that he that he triumphed over death and now leads those who were once held captive to death into a new life. The promise that he is a perfect high priest who represents his people before God as those who have no reason to fear their sins, those who are perfectly pure because of his work. That's the Jesus he's been holding out. Essentially, if you, if you put all that together, what he's saying is you've got two options on who you're going to be. You can be in captivity to death You can be those who live under the power of your sins and the guilt that comes with that. Or you can belong to Jesus and have his faithfulness be transferred to you. Have his faithfulness become yours. Take his track record for your own. That's been the point that Hebrews has been trying to make. In the words of of Paul in a passage we read earlier this morning, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's an exchange at root. It's an exchange that the Bible talks about with lots of imagery, like a new birth, like an adoption into a new family. But the image that the Bible uses for, what, for what's described in Hebrews and throughout the rest of the New Testament, the essence of the gospel, the image that the Bible uses that I think is most relevant for us today is the image of putting on Christ. All through the New Testament, there are references to the gospel as a kind of putting on of Christ. Let me give you just one example. In Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26, Paul says that we're the sons of God through faith. And he describes this, what it is, this reality, as having put on Christ. In verse 26. The result of this, he says, in verse 28, is that now there's no longer male or female or slave or free There's no longer Jew or Greek, but all are in Christ, and in Christ he is all that matters. Can you see what Paul is trying to do there? He's trying to say that now, having put on Christ, you've got a new identity. All the other things that used to define you, like whether you were Jew or Greek or male or female or slave or free, those things don't matter anymore. Now you are who you are in Christ because you've you've put him on. Now take that imagery and read it in light of the passage we've been looking at this morning. In light of the fact that God's word, its work, is to strip us naked of all the things that we have tried to use to clothe ourselves. God's word strips us down. But in light of the fact that we are promised that in Christ we get to put on an entirely new identity, this passage becomes not nearly so threatening as it is encouraging. That this thing that's going to be stripped away from us is something that was holding us back anyway. It expose, God's word may expose who we are, but it promises that we can be someone else, that the old can pass away and the new creature can emerge. Ultimately, every other time in Hebrews so far that God's word has been mentioned, it's been mentioned in light of this promise. It's been called the good news. It's the same good news that Israel heard and didn't hear and that we're now called on to listen to, the good news spoken through Jesus. Now, don't miss the implication. This throws a whole new light on this warning passage. And I'm going to close with just a couple of examples, okay? 
Just a couple examples. This promise that, that in Christ we are able to put on a new identity. This promise that is the essence of his word to us. Throws this warning passage about his words work to strip us down into a whole new light. I want to give you a couple examples of that. First, now we don't have to fear the penetrating power of God's word. We can welcome it because now we're able to see that sword that the Bible is as a weapon that's used to shave off the old that doesn't belong anymore, the old that can't abide the light and to strengthen the new. Now, obviously, on our own, It's a terrifying thing to be seen by our maker, to be seen by the one with whom we have to do, to use the King James language, for who we really are. But in Christ, that exposure is a blessing and not a threat because it exposes the things we don't want to be anymore. It gives light, it shines light on them so that we can strip them off and more fully embrace this new set of clothes. Let me give you you an example for my example. There was this show, I don't remember if it was on TLC or HGTV, or they probably all got a variety of it because it was successful, and that tends to lead to lots of reduplication. There was this show where, where these people would come into somebody's house who, who wears really bad clothes, and they, and they get rid of them, and they give them new ones. I think maybe it was called What Not to Wear. By now they're probably into like What Not to Wear Swamp People Edition or something like that. <laughs> what Not to Wear, I think was the name of the show. I don't know if it's still on, but it, it was on a few years ago. Well, the idea was that you, you, you go in, this person with outdated, worthless clothes, you throw them away, and you replace them with new, more fashionable, better matching clothes. Now, if somebody's only purging what you had before, that's a threat, right? You're going to think, well, I don't, what am I going to wear? Obviously, I still had those clothes because they had meaning to me. They were valuable to me. It's, it's not necessarily a good thing to have somebody just come in and, and ditch your wardrobe. But if that person is offering you an upgrade, then you don't have anything to fear, right? In fact, you want them to come in and get rid of all these old, out-of-date, tattered, and worthless clothes because those things are what are holding you back, and they're inconsistent with the new clothes that you've been given. You want them to say, you know what, that shirt that you're going to wear with those new pants, actually, it was a good shirt 20 years ago, but it doesn't match. So you want, you want to get rid of that. God's word is ultimately doing the same sort of thing for us. If, if our fundamental identity is in Jesus, if we put him on, then living in this world where we still struggle with the power of our sin, it's always going to be with us. What we need is someone to point out where the clothing we're wearing doesn't match the new set that we've been given in Christ. What we need is God's word to strip us down. If we accept our new garments, the righteousness of Jesus, then we get to go to God's word gladly to have the old stripped away. Then, what it, then on a practical level, what it begins to look like is a hunger to be in his word daily, reading it, looking for ways to submit to it, embracing the fact that it gets us on a deep level and even calls us out on a deeper level than we could on our own. It, it, it leads us to long to be with the people of God, listening to his word preached, listening to it opened up in Bible study. We want his word because we want those poor, lingering pieces to our wardrobe stripped away and replaced by the new. That's one example. We don't fear God's word, but we, we crave it if we're in Christ. Here's a second example. 
This one's really connected to the first, that we're going to seek out God's word, but it's also a little bit different. If, if we're found ultimately in Christ, if, if his robe is the one we wear, the fact that his righteousness is now ours because he's given it to us, then it has a huge impact on the way we relate to each other. We've been discussing this the past couple of weeks. In Hebrews 4, and, and really even earlier in Hebrews 3, the author drives us to live life with each other. Talks to us about exhorting each other every day to fight unbelief, to root out these areas of our life that aren't consistent with our identity in Christ. That's the call of, of Hebrews so far. Live life together and encourage each other. Now, at the center of that call to strive together is now placed God's word as a weapon that, that strips us down. And on its own, that is a really threatening thing when it's used by somebody else. If some friend who's watching us and observing us sees an inconsistency in the way that we live compared to what a follower of Jesus should look like, that could be very threatening. But, if we're trusting in an identity that's given to us by Jesus, that doesn't leave any room for the defensiveness with each other that comes natural to us, right? Ultimately, when somebody exposes something, challenges you, our knee-jerk is to get defensive. And why do we get defensive? Isn't it because we take it personally? We see them as challenging who we are. Maybe we think they think they're better than us. Maybe, they, maybe we don't like the fact that they think we're not good enough. But however, however it appears, at root, what it is, is us taking something personally. We've been challenged. However, if we're submitting to the power of God's word and that word has stripped us down, has removed that old identity, and has given us a new one, so that what matters most about us now is who we are in Jesus, then when somebody points out that there's some sort of lingering poor article of clothing in our ensemble, if there's some lingering power of sin that we're not fighting hard enough, when somebody applies the sword of God's word to that area of our life, we don't have to be defensive about it because ultimately we know that's not who we are anymore. What they've done is not challenge who we are, but expose that something is still true of us that is not who we are, something that's inconsistent with our identity in Christ. If God's word has stripped us naked of our old self and wrapped us up in Jesus' perfect righteousness, then when others point out our flaws, they're not challenging us. They're not confronting who we are, but they're confronting a lingering presence of who we're not. They're confronting an inconsistency. They're confronting the presence of old rags that need to be thrown out. The call of our passage this morning is that We are to submit our lives to the power of God's word, which is going to expose us for who we are before God one way or the other. The choice that we're given is whether or not to submit to its authority now, to embrace the diagnosis it gives us now, and to be driven by that stripping down to receive more fully the the, the righteousness that Christ offers us. That should be our prayer this morning. May God make it so. Father, help us. Help us not to cling to the old, but to embrace the new. Protect us from fear, from the defensiveness that comes when we're stripped down. And 
show us that that is a welcome blessing if it helps us to trust Jesus more. That's ultimately what we pray for. We know we've received the promise that your word, the same word that strips us down, is also the word that comes to us promising that we can be everything that Jesus has been because his work gets applied to us. That's the word we've received. What we want to do is receive it with humility and joy, to latch on to it, embrace it, to see it change us. Would you help us? Would you send the power of your spirit to guide us and to purge us and to make us new? That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.